Hey, guess what? I am still alive. <laughs> Welcome to the 13th episode of the Tokyuka Mea podcast. This is your host, Richard. Let's start the show. Before the recap, let's just、uh, check in with everyone. How are you all doing? How are you all doing in this crazy age of、uh, coronavirus? And,、um, and just how fast? Let's see, I think it's been a month since the last episode. And wow, that's a long time. So I apologize for that delay, but I have some very good reasons. But it's been a month, and、uh, just to see the way that、uh, the coronavirus has spread throughout the world、uh, from then until now, and it's so crazy, and all the things that have changed, and the adjustments that we have to make in our lives in order to just、uh, preserve our lives. And so, I hope that you're all doing okay. I'm doing okay.、Uh, just still quarantining here in Utah. And、um, it's such a relief, you know, to read、um, that、uh, coronavirus hasn't hit、uh, most of the islands back home.、Um, I know that, like, Fiji has a few, Tahiti. Uh, but, um, uh, and I think, if I read correctly, Guam or、uh, somewhere in.、Um, Micronesia. I can't remember which one of the island countries out there.、Um, but,、uh, you know, I think we should all feel lucky and feel blessed that we really haven't seen a, the pandemic hit、uh, most of the islands.、Um, sadly, over here in the United States,、um, it's been hitting our community really bad.、Um, in Oregon, Southern California, and even here in Utah, our Infection rates are disproportionately high. And、um, that doesn't mean that we are prone to the coronavirus.、Um, there, there are several factors that contribute to this.、Uh, most of it is because, you know, we,、um, a lot of us are in, on the front line working in essential jobs. And so when that happens,、um, you know, many of our people are putting their lives on the line. And、um, of course, you know, in Especially here in the USA, there are、um, health disparities that are very, very apparent in communities, communities of color. And this has more to do with just、uh, so much inequality that happens here.、Um, and that's a whole other issue in itself,、uh, a whole other podcast you could dedicate to that.、Um, and then, you know, our community, I mean, let's just be real, we are not healthy. We have underlying health issues that reflect really a lot of the things that are also、um, the health issues of the islands.、Uh, a lot of us are obese, diabetes, high blood pressure.、Um, there's a whole list, you know, gout, you name it.、Um, but what we know about the virus now is that if you have these underlying issues,、um, the virus is, is quicker. To work on your body and shut down your organs and things like that. And that's quite scary. And so、um, I know people that are in the hospital right now who are just fighting for their lives. And so I want to wish them all the best and I want all of you to be safe.、Um, I know there are a few of you that think that this is a hoax. I just want to say it is not a damn hoax. There are people in our community who are dying from it. So、uh, get your shit together. And here is your quick recap. After all the bloodshed and craziness, peace returns to Vava'u with a lot of pageantry and fanfare, parades of warriors and such walking in with their weapons and streamers, and peace is made at the Kumete, or a Tanoa if a Tuitonga is present. And we don't really know that because Mariner doesn't document that. But、uh, Kava serving as the ceremonial mediator between both parties, where all wounds are healed. Where all bitterness is released and everyone is being nice to each other,、uh, and uh, life goes on in Vava'u.
For those of you that have been following the podcast from the very beginning, and by the way, thank you for following those loyal fans out there. And I noticed that just looking at the data today, that uh, the podcast has had over 10,000 listens. So thank you for listening. But、uh, for those of you that have been listening from the very beginning, you'll notice a trend. In the way that Mariner tells his story. So there's usually some, you know,、uh, event, a huge, like epic event. And then afterwards,、um, he, he'll, he'll take some time to explain, like, different、um, cultural、uh, things that he's witnessing. And,、um, and so that's been the pacing of the book. And, and that's where we're at right now. And so now that the war is coming to a close,、uh, we're going to take a break in this episode. And Mariner is going to explain some of the activities. That he uh, witnessed uh, while tagging along with Finao Ulukalala. So at this point in the book, Mariner、uh, takes off to Ha'apai and he accompanies Finao Ulukalala's son, Moengango. And、um, they also go along with the Botoa and all of the people that w a s a part of Ulukalala's、uh, party、um, that were all from Ha'apai,、uh, all returned back to Ha'apai. At this point, also, if you all remember Filimor Atu, Filimor Atu was the one who came. So, if you remember a couple episodes ago,、uh, Finao Ulukalala has just taken over the Nukualofa fort. And so,、uh, Filimor Atu came to,、um, to ally himself with、uh, Ulukalala. And,、um, and so, we haven't heard from him since then. And I'm not really sure if he was part of this war and fighting along.、Um, Finao Ulukalala's、uh, side.、Uh, if any of you know that, please let me know.、Uh, but now he is back in the picture and he is sent to Tongatapu to get some kalai birds for Finao Ulukalala. Ulukalala was very fond of the sport Fana Kalai, and、uh, lucky for us, Mariner describes what that all entails. So let's talk about that. Fana Kalai, which means to shoot a kalai, um, is. Um, It's a sport that's, that only the king, so in this case it's Ulukalala or noble chiefs,、um, can participate in. Okay, so if you are lower class, if you're like a commoner like me,、um, or like most of us, you are not allowed to participate in this sport. This is how Mariner describes it A wicker cage was built and covered with leaves. A shooter would hide in the cage. A male bird was tied by the leg, and nearby would be a smaller cage, and attached to this cage is a female bird. They would make noises to each other, which would draw the attention of other Kalai birds. When they approach the area, they are shot by the participants of the game. The Kalai birds have keepers, and they train and manage the Kalai birds that are used to lure the others. The keepers have a lot of privilege and authority, they can demand any food items from the land. If they claim it is to feed the Kalai birds, even during times of extreme famine. If they see a bunch of plantains, they can tapu it by sticking a reed to the tree. So that tells the proprietor that the plantains have been claimed for the king. Here's a quote from Mariner These keepers live well and are, in general, very insolent fellows, sometimes committing very great depredations under frivolous pretensions of procuring food for their birds. The sufferer sometimes makes a complaint to the king or whatever chief the keeper belongs to. And if the chief thinks the offense is really outrageous, he orders the man a severe beating, which is usually done by inflicting heavy slaps with an open hand upon his back or striking him about the head and face with a fist. Wow, all over a bird. Okay, so hey. If I was a commoner and my role was to be a bird keeper for the king or whatever the high rank noble was in that area or chief, I'd be doing the same thing too. Gotta preserve myself, you know? So, Filimoy Atu goes to Tongatapu and returns with two birds, and Ulukalala was so pleased with them that he asked Filimoy Atu to get two more. And this time he sent him with axes, beads, Uh, a looking glass and several iron bolts and a grinding stone that was taken from the Porto Prince, along with、uh, several bales of that fine Vava Ungatu, some fine Samoan mats, and also a buttload of Kava. So, if you're familiar with the geography of Tonga,、um, the two Niwas are on the very north,、um, the highest northern part of Tonga, and then it's Vava'u, and then it is. 
Haapai and then Tongatapu on, on the south. And so, Fili Atu on this uh, return trip to Tongatapu to get more birds, Ulukalala accompanies him and he get, he goes as far as Ha'ano Ha'apai and that's where he gets off. And um, he also took more people with him and also some of his close chiefs with him. And the reason why he did that is because he wanted to um, give Vava'u an opportunity to rebuild and to so he wanted to lessen the burden uh, on the Vava'u people. And so he goes to Ha'ano Ha'apai and he waits there for Fili Moe'atu. So on the second trip to get the Kalai birds, a chief in, in Hihifo gave up his prized Kalai bird because he couldn't care for it any longer because the civil war in Tongatapu was still going on and, and it was taking up all his time. And so um, when Filimoyatu returns to Ha'apai, uh, this is one of the birds that he brings with him and um, they return to Vava'u. And while Ulukalala was in Ha'apai, uh, there were some developments happening in Vava'u at that same time. Several of the chiefs from Vava'u that fought against uh, Ulukalala, they didn't trust him and they didn't trust that he would truly bring peace to Vava'u. And so they took off. And those chiefs were Makapapa, Lolohea Pipiki, and then there were three others. And they sailed to Tongatapu and aligned themselves with Takai. And if you remember Takai, he was the one who, uh, when Ulukalala rebuilt the Nukualofa fort after he destroyed it with the cannons, um, he was the one, um, and I think Takai came from Pea. Uh, Pea was a uh, another Kolotau or another fort, a fort village that was close by. Anyway, he was the one, so when Ulukalala was going back to Pangaimotu, the little island that's just off the coast of of uh, Nukualofa, he turned around and he saw that Takai had burnt the fort down to the ground. Okay, so these chiefs from Vava'u, uh, they fled Vava'u and they went aligned themselves with Takai. And I'm sure Ulukalala was not happy about this. Mariner says, they took this time to leave, being apprehensive that the king might hereafter wreak his vengeance on them for fighting against him. I would say these uh, Vava'u men were extremely smart. Good move. So while that's all going on, Mariner is uh, accompanying Moengangongo to Tofua. And Tofua is an island uh, just off of Ha'apai. It is a cone-shaped caldera. So I'm looking at pictures of it right now on uh, Google Images. And it's uh, really, a, it's a beautiful looking caldera. It looks like an upside down cone. But then in the middle of it is an actual um, crater and um, apparently the volcano is still active and uh, just by looking at these pictures it looks like the crater is filled with water and um, it's it's really beautiful this is um, I see hikers and people there so apparently it's accessible there's a really cool uh, Tongan fananga uh, a myth that goes along with uh, the fua and um, it goes like this so Tofua at one time was a, a taller volcanic mountain, okay? And uh, apparently, and this is uh, taken from E.W. Gifford's book, uh, Tongan Myths and Tales. Uh, this was written in the 1920s. But I remember also hearing this story when I, was, um, when I grew up in Tonga. But basically, the story goes like this. Three deities came from Samoa, and their names were... Tuvu Vata, Sisi, and Fainga, and they conspired to steal Tofua. So they came and they tore up the high mountain by its very roots, and its place was taken by a large lake. This enraged the Tongan gods very much, and one of them, Tafakula, tried to stop the thieves. He stood on the island of Luahako and bent over so as to show his anus. It shone so brilliantly that the Samoan deities were struck with fear, thinking that the sun was rising and that their dastardly works were about to be revealed. Hence, they dropped the mountain and fled to Samoa, and that part of the mountain became the island of Gao. So let's make this a little interactive. If you have your computers there or your phones, uh, pull up a map of Hapai, and I just typed in 
Hapai in um, in a Google search, and it pulled up a map, and you can see where Kao and Tofua are located. Um, it's uh, west, sort of like north west of Hapai, and um, Kao is situated just uh, north of Tofua, not that far from it. Um, uh, pretty cool stuff, huh? Um, okay, but an anus, really? And it was bright. Like, wouldn't it be like pink or uh, okay? Never mind. So prior to their excursion at Tofua, uh, Mariner and Moengangongo had to get permission from Matuitonga because Tofua was his property. And so while on Tofua, Mariner went to see the grave of John Norton. John Norton. So recently in the headlines, uh, Trump brought up um, the mutiny on the bounty. Okay, Mutiny on the Bounty is um, it's actually a true story, and uh, several movies have been made about this. There was I, there was a black and white one I think was the very first one, and then there was another one starring um, Marlon Brando, who ended up marrying his um, Tahitian uh, counterpart in that movie. Very very beautiful Tahitian woman. Um, and then another version was made by Mel Gibson, and that one was not good. Um, anyway, so the Mutiny on the Bounty, this is a story about uh, a ship called the Bounty and uh, the captain by the name of William Bly. The Bounty was um, an English ship, and um, they had a mission to go to the Pacific, and they were to get breadfruit, um, so some, you know, in Tonga we call it May, and other parts of the Pacific they call it Ulu or Uru, uh, and there are other parts that call it May as well. But um, apparently, um, he was sent. Blai was sent to Tonga along with some botanists, and they were to get uh, breadfruit to bring back to the Caribbean because that's where um, the British had their colonies, and it was for the purpose of feeding their slaves because. The, um, there was a famine, the slaves didn't have anything to eat, and of course, if slaves aren't eating and if they are not working, uh, that means that they are not making money for uh, these greedy capitalist bastards who were enslaving them. And so, um, William Bly was uh, sent to the Pacific to get breadfruit, and I believe they, um, the English was familiar with breadfruit because of Captain Cook. I may be wrong. But Captain Cook was before all of this. So anyway, um, there was a mutiny after he left Tahiti because uh, the people, his crew, for one thing, uh, Captain Bly was a bastard. He was mean to his crew. And then second of all, um, his crew wanted to stay in Tahiti because they were very happy there. Um, and so anyway, that's a long story. Uh, that's another podcast in itself, right? But anyway, so there was a mutiny and Captain Bly and uh, some of his crew were put on a smaller boat and they were sent out while um, the remaining crew led by uh, Christian Fletcher. Um, they took over the, boun the bounty. I believe they tried to go back to Tahiti and get more women. And then they ended up at the island called uh, Pitcairn. I think that's how you say it. Um, but like I said, that's a whole other story in itself. Uh, one of the popular stories of, um, of events that happen in the Pacific. Anyway, so Captain Bly is trying to make his way to Australia so that they can eventually go from there back to England. And on his way to Australia, they were stranded in Tonga and they ended up uh, at Tofua. And at Tofua, there was a little skirmish that happened with uh, the natives. Basically, uh, Bly and a few of his crewmen went on shore, and one of them, uh, one of his crewmen took an axe with him. And so, of course, uh, the Tongans saw the axe, and they wanted it. And um, they, I don't know if it was like a, um, if they aggressively tried to take it from him, or they were wanting it. Anyway, whatever happened, uh, that dude died. And so he was buried at the Fua, and Mariner knew about this, and so he wanted to go and visit uh, the gravesite of this person, John Norton. Apparently, um, so the site um, where he was killed, and um, and they dragged his body to uh, Malae and left it there for several days before they gave him a proper burial. 
but apparently um, the spot where he was killed and where they dragged his body like all of the grass and all of the brush and everything in that trail um, is dead even to this day um, and so his grave is still there in Tofua to this very day Sorry about that. So back in Hapai, uh, Urukalala is holding a kava session with Billy Moyatu and some of his other uh, close, high-ranking chiefs. And so Mariner says one of the things that uh, they like to do is just talk about, you know, some of the current events. And Urukalala is asking Fili Moyatu just to update him on some of the things that he heard in Tongatapu. And so um, this is what Fili Moyatu shared with him. Uh, a Tongan chiefly couple by the name of Palu Matamounga and his wife Fatafehi left Tonga around the time of civil unrest. So this is during the time of Tuku Aho's assassination. So we're going back to even before Mariner arrived in Tonga. And so apparently this couple, they lived in Fiji for a while and then they moved to Botany Bay, Australia. Um, so this is cool to know that, you know, Tongans were actually being mobile at the time and, uh, and going outside of uh, the Pacific Islands and um, staring over at uh, places like Australia. And so they were uh, living in Botany Bay, Australia. They tried to return to Tonga, but due to the state of uh, civil wars that were still going on in uh, Tongatapu, they decided to return to Botany Bay. Um, and so when they went back, uh, they were treated like commoners. They were made to work heavy labor. Uh, they were forced to clean and um, this was all at the governor's house and so when they try to explain that they were chiefs back in Tonga and are accustomed to being waited on um, the Australians were like uh, okay that's nice um, and uh, continue to put them to work and so uh, they saw people enter into a shop and walk out with food and so naturally they went inside the shop and expected to be fed as it is in our Tongan customs. And, um, you know, we had a um, close look at this in a previous episode when Mariner and some of the other um, of his uh, crewmates from Port-au-Prince was trying to get food. Um, and then they had to learn the hard way how Tongans uh, shared their meals and that, um, you know, basically you just have to go into a house that's cooking and just uh, sit down and eat with them. Um, and so... He goes into the shop and he is asking for food and of course he had no money so they kicked him out. Um, and so they soon learned that money makes man a chief so they worked hard, became better acquainted with the customs and language and the man expressed his astonishment at how much white people grind from morning until night for money. And so Mariner documents, after hearing this account Finau asked several questions respecting the nature of money. What is it made of? Was it like iron? Could it be fashioned like iron into various useful instruments? And if not, why could not people procure what they wanted in the way of barter? But where was money to be got? If it was made, then every man ought to spend his time in making money, that when he got plenty, he might be able afterwards to obtain whatever he wanted. And so this was a question that was directed towards Mariner because Ulukalala wanted to know what is this money and how does it work? So Mariner says, in answer to the last observation, I replied that the material of which money was made was very scarce and difficult to be got, and that only chiefs and great men could procure readily a large quantity of it, and this either by being inheritors of plantations or houses which they allowed others to have, for paying them so much tribute and money every year or by their public services or by paying small sums of money for things when they were in plenty and afterwards letting others have them for larger sums when they were scarce. As to the lower classes of people, they worked hard and got paid by their employers in small quantities of money as their reward of their labor. That the king was the only person that was allowed to make or coin money that, and that he had put his mark upon all that he made, that it might be known to be true, that no person could readily procure the material of which it was made without paying money for it. And if contrary to the taboo of the king, 
he turned his material into money, he would scarcely have made as much as he had given for it. Fimoyatu says, I understand how it is. So money is less cumbersome than goods, but it is very convenient for a man to exchange away his goods for money, which at any other time he could exchange again for the same or any other goods that he might want. Whereas the goods themselves might have spoiled by keeping, particularly if provisions, but the money he supposed would not spoil, and although it was of no true value itself, yet being scarce and difficult to be got without something useful and really valuable for it. It was imagined to be of value, and if everybody considered it so, and would readily give their goods for it, he did not see but what it was of a sort of real value to all who possessed it, as long as their neighbors chose to take it in the same way. Merner then says, I found I could not give a better explanation. I therefore told Filimoyatu that his notion of the nature of money was a just one. And after a pause of some length, Finau replied that the explanation did not satisfy him. He still thought it was a foolish thing that people should place a value on money when they either could not or would not apply it to any useful or physical purpose. If, said he, if it were made of iron and could be converted into knives, axes, and chisels, there would be some sense in placing a value on it. But as it was, he saw none. If a man, he added, has more yams than he wants, let him exchange some of that away for pork or ngatu. Certainly money was much handier and more convenient, but then as it would not spoil by being kept, people would store it up instead of sharing it out as a chief ought to do and thus become selfish. Whereas if food was the principal property of a man, and it ought to be, as being the most useful and the most necessary, he could not store it up for it would spoil, and so he would be obliged either to exchange it away for something else useful, or share it out to his neighbors and inferior chiefs and dependents for nothing. He concluded by saying, I understand now very well what it is that makes Balangi so selfish. It is this money. Damn! Okay, so, this is one of the things that... Um, you know, I, I have a love-hate relationship with Ulukalala, and I'm sure many of you too have been following the podcast, uh, because he is this fierce warlord, um, but he's also, uh, you know, very savvy politician, knows how to manipulate people, um, using the culture to get what he wants. Um, and by that I mean, like, Mariner, you know, documented how he didn't really believe that Ulukalala was a religious person, but he saw the advantages of uh, consulting with his priests regularly and oftenly and being transparent about it because then it, it makes it appear to the people that he still observes a lot of the uh, religious uh, rituals of the time, right? Um, and then for him to just have such an astute um, observation of uh, currency, even though there's no, at that time in Tonga, there was uh, no kind of uh, European type currency. Uh, people, you know, in Tonga bartered um, and even shared. Um, and there was no value, no monetary value that was placed on uh, cultural artifacts, cultural items that were shared with each other. And so his, um, just this hot take on money and without even understanding how currency works, um, he still knew that a system like that would bring a lot of inequality to Tonga, even though I think you can also make the argument that the current system then uh, was also, you know, unequal. Anyway, so Mariner says to Fina, when I informed him that dollars were money, he was greatly surprised, having always taken them for playing counters and things of little value. And he was exceedingly sorry he had not secured all the dollars out of the Port-au-Prince before he ordered her to be burnt. I had always thought, said he, that your ship belonged to some poor fellow, perhaps to King George's cook. At these islands, a cook is considered one of the lowest mankind in point of rank. Okay, I take great offense to that because I can throw down in the kitchen. I can throw down in a umu. So um, I'm actually, I'm happy I did not live back then because then I would be really a piece of shit. Anyway, Mariner says, Captain Cook's ship, which belonged to the king, had plenty of beads, axes, and looking glasses on board 
while yours had nothing but iron hoops, oil, skins, and 12,000 plain counters, as I thought them. But if every one of these was your money, your ship must have belonged to a very great chief indeed. So uh, that was Ulukalala, who didn't, uh, because he didn't understand what currency uh, meant, um, and that currency can be in different forms, whether it's paper or coins. Uh, and apparently Port-au-Prince had a lot of uh, paper or dollars and uh, Finau Ulkalala didn't think it meant anything. And so he ended up uh, sinking them with a ship or burning it. And so um, now he understands uh, after this little conversation that he had lost out on, you know, he could have been richer if he had kept all those things. Did the anus shine and how is it so bright in the sky okay and anyway so six weeks later Fina uh, Ulukalala and his entire party they all return to Vava'u and as soon as they arrive in Vava'u the king orders that all dogs in the islands except for those belonging to chiefs should be killed because they pose a threat to the, his collection of Galaya birds so Mariner reported that about 50 to 60 dogs were killed and cooked. And Ulkalala had a fondness for dog meat, but he ordered it to be called pork because women and many of his men hated dog meat. <laughs> okay, that is so damn funny. It is not dog, it is pork. I actually like pork. I haven't tasted um, I haven't tasted guli, but I will tell you when we lived in Tonga. Um, I saw people eating guli. I just never partook of it. And my mom, she says that whenever she was pregnant with um, with us and my, you know, my siblings, that she was craving dog. And so Mariner, he talks about how he loves dog meat. And he said the fat was excellent. He also tasted dog during the time uh, when the Porto Prince was in Hawaii. And he also added that in Hawaii, male dogs were neutered and fattened up so that it is just as good and tender as a suckling pig. Very, very interesting. I don't know what to say about that one, but I am a dog lover. And so, yeah, we will just uh, move on. And so while they're in Vava'u, they decide to go and shoot birds and rats. And so uh, Ulkalala and a small group of his men a mariner accompanies them and they go to the island of Nuapapu in Vava'u to shoot birds and rats. Uh, before they do this, though, they, um, they go to this cave. Uh, right now, uh, if you go to Tonga today, this cave is named Mariner's Cave. Um, but there is a story that actually um, goes along with this legend of the cave. And so um, apparently at one time, I wonder if there's anuses in this one. Okay, so apparently, this is how the story goes. There was a chief of Ava'u who was just basically an asshole. Um, very tyrannical towards his people. Um, his people were scared of him. Um, so he was basically worse than Ulukala. I mean, for all his fault, he still had people who were still very loyal to him and who still liked him. So this uh, chief must have been a big jerk. And of course, all stories have a hero. And so there was another chief. And this chief was um, so determined to free the people of Ava'u from the bondage from this tyrannical king. And so he cooked up a plan where they were going to assassinate him. However, in his own group, there was a backstabbing bastard. Why is this a, a pattern we see in all these stories? There's always some bastard in this story who is like... A, a cowardly piece of shit and he uh, ended up going and revealing the plans to this tyrannical chief and so he rounded up the family of um, this other chief that was going to rise up against him and he condemned them all to death and they were going to die by drowning so this chief this doomed chief had a young daughter and she was engaged to a handsome young chief and he decided that he was going to uh, save her. And so he knew of this cave. And he knew that if he um, 
put her in this cave that she would be preserved and that he would be able to um, take her out of the cave later and then they would run away and live their life uh, the rest of their life in Fiji and that's exactly what happened and so this cave um, and this cave exists in real life um, so he knew of this cave and nobody else knew of it and so when they had thrown the family into the sea to drown them he was already waiting um, in the cave to go and rescue his um, his hot thang and so when she was thrown into the ocean he was already under there and he grabbed her um, took her into the cave and then kept her there until it was the right time for them to flee and so that's the whole legend of the cave and apparently you know he um he was able to uh, get a uh, galia together um, and they were able to flee from the island and before they left they stopped at the uh, where he knew the entrance of the cave was in the ocean and he was able to swim under go into the cave um, and then grab his boo thang and then they left to Vabao. so a very romantic story that is associated uh, with this cave in uh, Nuapapu, Vavau. Um, look it up because there are some beautiful pictures of scuba divers in this cave. So here's another interactive assignment for you. The Nuapapu cave in Vavau. Look it up and look at all the beautiful pictures people have taken inside that cave. Anyway, so Finau Ulukalao and his party, they all go into this cave um, to drink kava. And so... And so after they drink their kava, they uh, swim back to the surface, uh, they put their clothes back on, and then they go out and they hunt for rats. And so Mariner describes how this whole uh, rat hunting, I mean, it's not just going out and looking for rats. There's actually a whole organized way that they do this. Um, the bait that they used, um, so there are designated people within the hunting party and their job is to chew on roasted coconut flesh and then they're to spit it out. And wherever they spit it out, it's very strategically placed because that's what is used to lure out the rats. And so wherever they roamed, they marked the territory with reed. And again, um, this is a way to signify to others that that area is tapu because this is where um, the king or high-ranking chiefs are going to be hunting. And so if you are a commoner, you should not be uh, trespassing in that area. Mariner writes, This no one will do, for even if a considerable chief be passing that way, on seeing the tapu, he will stop at a distance and sit on the ground out of respect or politeness to his fellow chiefs and wait patiently till the shooting party has gone by. A petty chief or one of lower orders would not dare to infringe upon this taboo at the risk of his life. The distributors of the bait, being arrived at the place appointed for them to stop at, sit down to prepare kava, having previously given the orders of their chiefs to the owners of the neighboring plantation to send a supply of refreshments such as pork, yams, fowls, and ripe plantains. So that's interesting. Um, in the party, so um, there's a baiter. And they mark the territories, and you are not to trespass in the territory, especially if you were a person of low rank. Um, interesting, I think that uh, chiefs have to sit and wait until they're done before they can proceed. Um, and then if they are near a village, that village is uh, has an obligation to provide meals for the hunting party. So, pretty cool. Ten minutes after the bait is set, the hunting party begins the hunt. And these are the rules. There are alternate rows of competing parties. The highest ranking chief is in the first row. No one can shoot a rat ahead of them except for the front row, but everyone behind them can shoot a rat that is behind or beside them. If you land a kill, you switch with your team member behind you and so forth. And whichever team kills ten rats first wins. And they usually go three to four rounds depending on how many rats there are. I wonder how big these rats were. Um, because I've seen the rats in Tonga and I, I don't think they're that big. Um, I've seen New York rats. Now those are big ass rats. So, um, so Mariner describes the arrows. Uh, the arrows used on these occasions are nearly six feet long 
Wow. That's, I'm six foot one, so that's almost as tall as me. The war arrows being about three feet. So there's a difference between the arrows that they use for uh, rat hunting and then the warrior, the arrows they use for war. Uh, war arrows are only three feet. Okay. Um, so these arrows that are used for rat hunting is made of reed. Um, I think when he's saying reed, I think he's actually referring to bamboo. Um, headed with ironwood. They are not feathered and their great length is requisite that they may go straight enough to... A few days after this excursion, Finau arrived at Feletoa, and he issued orders for a general assembly of the people to be present on an appointed day and at a general fono to be addressed to them in regard to the affairs of agriculture and to remind them of their duty towards their chiefs and how they ought to behave at all public ceremonies. So a fono is very common in Tongan culture. Basically, it's just a large meeting where um, you know, decrees are made. Um, if there was a event, an important cultural uh, event coming up, this is where um, the division of labor would happen. Assignments are made to, you know, groups of people, um, people who specialize in different things. Um, this would all take place in like a village fono. And so, after you know all this rec recreation, that Ulukalala and his selected chiefs and also mariner being a part of it as well um, after all the fun they've had um, they're back in Mava'u um, and at uh, Feletoa he issues uh, an order for a fono and then he's going to make some um, proclamations or decrees or whatever at this fono a mariner gives examples of when a fono would be held um, one of the examples he gave, uh, a fono was held for repairing the king's canoe. So basically, you know, that entails getting all of the um, the carpenters, people who know that particular skill of um, building canoes, getting them together. It's also a matter of uh, securing the resources to make it happen. Um, the same thing with constructing a house, um, planting of like uh, yams and things like that in preparation for like let's say an inasi is coming up you know so this is where they would organize who does what and um, I would even say that you know Tongans today this is very much how we are organized uh, when we are um, called upon to come together and get stuff done um, another uh, instance would be, uh, and Mariner mentions this, is if young men are out of line. Um, this is where um, the chief would address improper conduct and offenses. And Mariner mentions um, that there's usually a fono either general or partial every 14 to 20 days because uh, there wasn't a written language. And so uh, this was the best way to get information out to the public was to have a fono usually every two weeks. Mariner says, um, it will be easily understood that addresses of this kind are absolutely and frequently necessary for the preservation of tolerable decency and good order among a people who have no knowledge or any means of graphic communication. So just basically talking about, you know, there wasn't a written language in Tonga at the time. The speech is generally made by some old and principal mata bullet. And this particular fono took place in the village of Makave, which is about two miles from uh, Feletoa. So uh, the decree was made. Everyone knew uh, to meet in Makave for this uh, important fono. And uh, of course, like all cultural ceremonies, Gava was a big part of the fono. Mariner says, the chiefs and warriors of Vava'u took an active part in the preparation of the kava to demonstrate to Finau their attention and loyalty. So I'm assuming that this is the first time uh, all parties are coming together to begin uh, maybe the reconstruction of, of Vava'u because, you know, they just had a war. It's been about maybe two months since then. Um, and this was the time for reconstruction. And this is what the Fono was going to be about. So back to what Mariner was saying. Uh, the chiefs and warriors of Vava'u took a very active part 
in the preparation of the kava to demonstrate to Finau their attention and loyalty. After the first bowl was drunk, while all were in expectation that Finau would give out some more kava root to be prepared, on a sudden he pronounced the word buke. Buke means to hold them or arrest them. And instantly all the chiefs and the warriors that had been particularly active against him in the late war were seized by men previously appointed, their hands were tied behind them, and they were taken down to the beach. Okay, I think we're going to end this podcast right here. But um, dang, how about that ending? So, you know, we uh, going back to the pacing of this episode, you know, all this recreation, uh, we get to go to the Fuan Hapai. We learn a little bit more about, you know, the, um, the origins of that island. Uh, we have a connection to the mutiny on the bounty. Um, you know, Filimoyatu goes to Tongatapu to uh, get some kalai birds. So we learn about kalai uh, hunting. We learn about rat hunting, uh, fanakuma and fanakalai. And then we have this fono and just um, disappointingly after Ulukalala gives that awesome um, observation about currency and about money. And then we see him just, um, you know, he he waited it out. You got to admit he was very patient. He was very patient. And um, he seizes these Vava'u warriors. And in the next episode, we are going to learn what happens to them. But um, think of the ones who already took off. So um, they are very lucky, like I said before, very smart to get out of there. Because Ulukalala, he's petty. He's a petty one. And we see in this episode, you know, towards the end that um, he still held on to these grudges. And now these Vava'u warriors who remained behind Vava'u, they're going to pay for it with their lives. I'm so bummed, y'all. I am so bummed. Um, You know, just when he is becoming likable, then he pulls something like this. So... Um, but hey, we got to hear about an anus in the sky. So, I mean, (laughs) this episode is crazy. So, um, we probably have enough content to do three more. I'm thinking about three more and I'm kind of sad that we're almost at the end of the book. So, um, those of you, I know there are some new people who are just joining and listening to the podcast. I highly recommend for you that are asking about books. Um, This is taken from uh, Mariner's uh, account, which you can find on Amazon. But I would, I highly recommend a book called uh, The Tonga Book. And it's written by Paul W. Dale um, because he kind of breaks it down, I think, into a more... um, it's just more enjoyable to read his uh, the way he kind of rewrote the story. So those are the two books for those of you who have been asking me new to the podcast, who have been asking me about where am I getting this material. Check out those two books. Uh, both of them are on Amazon. And then again, thank you for listening. Um, and like I said before, th- maybe three more episodes to go. And then we are done. Thank you for everyone who's been hanging there since the very beginning. And sorry for that Um break that long break but i really really needed it so um those of you who uh, i i've talked about this in my podcast but i work in education and because of this coronavirus thing we've had to make a lot of um, transitions and a lot of changes in the way we do things um and so i am spending a lot of time um preparing lesson plans and um, things like that um, to get my students to to continue to learn in this new environment. So all of our students are learning um, from home. And so preparing lessons for a distance learning uh, education format is just very, very different. Um, it's a lot more preparation and a lot of things that um, I just have to really Uh, spend my time organizing and preparing so 
yeah so if you're wondering what was going on that's what was happening school's almost out and so um i can uh, well at least by the time school's out i'll be done with the podcast but uh, some of you've been asking if i'm doing anything after this or if i'm doing another book i'm not doing another book but i have some other projects that are coming up so um, i will announce that later in uh, future episodes so anyways Uh, Thank you all for uh, hanging in there patiently. I hope, again, like I said before, that you are all uh, being safe out there um, from this corona craziness. Um, And again, those of you in our community who think that this is a joke, it is not a joke. There are people who are dying in our community from the coronavirus. Okay, It's not a joke and it's not a hoax. And if you think it is, you are going to get a visit from the shiny bright anus in the sky all right see you at the offer and take care everyone